Hello and welcome to the News Roundup. I'm Oliver Thompson. And I'm Hannah Newton. Coming up on this week's programme, well, hotspot, government global credit rating revealed and community day at the museum. A crewman is missing from the jigging vessel Fulcoa 101. The alarm was raised at 5.30 in the evening on Saturday the 8th of May and a search began assisted by fish ops and four vessels, including the Protagat. After 36 hours of searching, the man was not found and the search was called off due to the weathering conditionings worsening. The jigger is now in port and an investigation has begun. Six members of the Legislative Assembly were present at the public meeting on Monday evening. The meeting attracted more than the usual amount of public, who proceeded to ask questions on the COVID recovery plan, the possibility of using Starlink for internet services, and the problems with housing. In a question about salmon farming, MLA Teslin Barkman confirmed that the first part of a report from McAllister, Elliott and Partners would be coming out soon, and MLA Roger Spink reminded the public that the report was not a commitment to proceed, but to better inform the government in the decision-making process. Last week we reported on the draft report put together by the Public Accounts Committee into the building of the Falcons College. In the report, the PAC lists numerous times that the government has been uncooperative with the investigation. We spoke to MLA Dr Barry Elsby, who sits on the PAC, about the report. Its role is to look at making sure the government and people have got value for money, that taxpayers' money has been spent wisely and we've got value for that. The way we do that is we look at projects that might not have on the surface appear to have gone very well or maybe they've run over budget or whatever and we ask investigators, maybe accountants, people like that to actually research the whole project. So start at the beginning, when those decisions were made to to start it off, were the clear plans, were the clear objectives, the clear budget was laid out and what happened during the project? Did it overrun by time? Did it overrun by money? Did it overspend? And that enables us to determine whether there was value for money and one hopes there always is going to be yes that's a good project it worked well um, and yes there might have been some minor delays but they were outside of the remit and and they're acceptable occasionally the research will show that the project was poorly managed and perhaps no one really understood how long it was going to take or how much it was going to cost before the button was pressed to start the project and the aim of the PAC then is, is to highlight those concerns. So if there are problems within the Department of Government, we can highlight that to the Department and say, look, this went wrong. What are you going to do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Which is the whole ethos of the PAC is to highlight problems so that people can learn. And we saw that in, in the way the swimming pool was handled. It, it's perhaps one of our most important reports that we did when the pool was repaired with fiberglass and we went back to the very beginning and looked at what was found to be wrong, the solution that was chosen, why it was chosen, why it was wrong in the end and what we got to learn from that. And there were a lot of lessons. It was very embarrassing for people, it was embarrassing for the government and it was embarrassing for MLAs. But we learnt a lot from that and now we've got this swimming pool almost ready to open it's of a hugely better quality than the repair we had before because we've learned from that and this will represent really good value for money and we won't make the mistakes we made in the plastic swimming pool. We reported 
back in towards the beginning of the year, there was an Exco, very critical Exco paper that came through about the hospital. Will the PAC have a role in, in that particular investigation? Oh gosh, that's a, that's a, it could do. Um, the, the PAC in, in Westminster in London is very powerful. And we had the chair of the PAC, Meg Hillier, who came down here a year or so ago when we had the, the women's conference of the uh, CPA here. And we spoke to her as the PAC and we learned a lot from her. They are quite powerful and they summon MPs to come along. They also have a thing called the National Audit Office, which constantly is looking at the way, way things have been done. And one of theirs is, is regularly looking at the way hospitals are maintained, how hospitals are run. So yes, there could be a role for the PAC here to see whether the amount of money that was invested was right, the fact that maintenance perhaps wasn't done when it should have been done has led now to problems where there's basically going to be a building site for some time, where much money is having to be spent on trying to get the hospital back into what the report said was get it back into a fit state where we are concerned about the, the fire safety, we're concerned about Legionella, we're concerned about sewage being on the wards sometimes in the hospital. We've allocated already two million pounds for those repairs, knowing that that isn't enough, that we're going to come back in three years' time and work out how much more is going to be necessary once the full extent of the need for repairs is made. And it's quite serious. This is, this is our only hospital in the islands. Um, and the, PA, the, the, the Exco report that was published talked about it being unfit, unfit to be in. Um, and I think that's quite damning. And so the PAC may well have a, a role to play here. Changes to the point system for applicants for a permanent residence permit will be changing. The paper will go to Executive Council and to the House in June. We spoke to Programme Director Jim Horton about some of the changes expected. So at the end of last year there were changes to the PRP quota. It was raised to 90, so that's 90 applications per year. There's changes to um, how they will be assessed. So they, they will be assessed monthly instead of quarterly. There's changes to uh, eligibility criteria. So. Uh, previously, residency requirements were only for the main applicants, minimum of three years. They will, going forward, they will be for all, uh, all applicants, so dependents of the main applicant also. There will be educational uh, assessments for those who require it, so those under 16. We currently don't have those for PRP. There are changes to the uh, PRP points threshold, so currently it's 45 points for a single applicant and it's 54 for um, including a dependent, the new threshold will be 50 regardless. And there's change, changes, most importantly, to the schedule, the point schedule. There's less emphasis placed on formal qualifications and um, assets. And there's more emphasis placed on skills, experience, uh, what job you do, what, what you bring to the Falklands. So for instance, educational and professional uh, qualifications currently are worth 10 or 15 points for the applicant, or 8 or 12 points for a dependent. They will be worth 5 going forward. Earned income, the minimum wage currently earns 4 points. It will earn 10 points under the new regulations. The uh, employment, there's no uh, points given for camp employment. There will be points given for camp employment going forward. So that's, that's quite a big change. 
there's, there's more points for um, those applicants who apply sooner. So there's points at three years instead of uh, waiting for five years for points. There are points given for a wider range of jobs than we currently have. We currently have the critical skills list, which has highly skilled work on there. And there's a range of points from one to five. With the workforce shortage list, there will be points available for all the jobs on there. So um, more varied jobs are able to uh, attain points for PRP. So that enables more people to uh, attain PRP. The second dose of the COVID vaccination for those under 40 will be taking place this coming week. That should mean that over 94% of the population will have been vaccinated against COVID-19. In a press call on Wednesday afternoon, government officials began to set out the plan for recovery for the Falkland Islands and look at how to keep the population safe as the world returns to normal. The Falkland Islands government has been given a global A-plus credit rating by S&P Global Ratings. The rating means the government has demonstrated a strong capacity to meet its financial commitments and the good economic position is supported by prudent financial decision-making. We spoke to MLA Dr Barry Ellsby and asked him if the Falklands' good economic position was down to spending the bare minimum over the past few years to the detriment of key services such as the hospital and the power station. And that organisation is an internationally recognised organisation that will look at a country and try to estimate how well it is run. Is it fiscally sound? In other words, does it look after its money? Um, is it a good place to invest? So if you have some spare money or you're a hedge fund and you want to invest some money, is that a good place? Is it a place where you might want to loan people money? Again, this, this estimate we've got, this rating we've got, tells companies who might want to invest or even loan money is that this is a sound business proposition. You're investing in a, a, in a country that is fiscally sound, in other words, it really looks after its money, it's not wasting money, and, and yeah, it, it's very positive. And it also says something to the countries in the region as well, because some countries would have you believe the Falkland Islands just exists on handouts from the UK, and, and that's clearly not true. And this, again, this, this report shows that this is a country that manages its own wealth and looks after things in a prudent manner. So it sends lots of messages there. It sends messages out to lenders and to investors, but it also sends out a political message as well. Is, are we in this position because the government hasn't spent the money on the infrastructure over the, over a number of years. We, we are spending money now, and, and seriously, over the next five years, our capital project is, is really quite large, and people say, well, can you spend all that? And in the past, we've, we've allocated money to, to capital works, and the problem we have many times is that we don't spend it all. We don't actually get through all those projects. And, and we're struggling at the moment over these last... Three, four, three and a half years of this assembly to do the same. We've allocated lots of money and we're doing our best to spend it because there are key uh, capital works that need to be done. We recognise that and it's getting it done in the remote Falkland Islands where labour's at a premium, deliveries and everything else has their problems. So no, we are keen to spend money. That's, that's quite a thing from a statement from a government, isn't it? But we want to spend money. Anyone who has visited Cape Pembroke recently wouldn't have failed to notice how many whales can be spotted from the shore. Research has revealed that the Falkland Islands are a globally important hotspot for the endangered sea whale. 
whose population is in recovery at the moment after years of hunting. As a result, the first ever key biodiversity area for say whales has been confirmed. Catherine spoke to Michelle Winard and Caroline Weir from the Falcons Conservation about this achievement. It's one of the few places in the world where anyone who is out and about enjoying the coastal areas could see a say whale from shore. And as a result, the Falkland Islands has been designated as a key biodiversity area for say whales, which is a global first. Michelle Winard is a communications and marketing officer at Falklands Conservation. This confirmation as a key biodiversity area is really, really, really something to celebrate for say whales. We are the very first one of these areas in the world for say whales, just proving what a global hotspot we are for these endangered whales. Almost no one else in the world can go out along their coastlines and see these say whales in the numbers or as close as we can here. And this, this KBA confirmation is an, is an international recognition of that. It's really, really something for the islands to be proud of. This international recognition of the importance of the Falkland Islands for say whales is a result of five years of ongoing research by Falklands Conservation. Dr Caroline Weir from Falklands Conservation is a say whale project lead. It's a major milestone for us um, as an organisation uh, for Falklands Conservation and for myself personally. It's, it's been a, a large amount of time invested in working with the, the whales and uh, the work is amazing. There's so many highlights anyway on a day-to-day -day basis but yeah, to have this as a, a kind of really tangible end goal and result, it's, it's great. The research has been a collaborative approach with funding partners, including the RSPB, Darwin Plus, EU Best and the Falkland Islands Government. And much has been discovered about the whale populations in and around the islands. The saywell is a species that's really very poorly known uh, globally, so a lot of the information we're finding out here on, um, on the diet and the group sizes and what the whales are doing and how they're foraging, it's really um, globally significant information. It's, it's telling us a lot about the species here and also that will apply to other areas too. So it's a big learning curve and we're really only just scratching the surface with, with what we've discovered about the whales and kind of uh, for every answer you get there's another 20 questions. Um, so I think there's a lot of scope for this continuing for some time to come. Just one of the discoveries in the course of this research is that say whales return to the Falklands year on year, identifiable by their dorsal fins. This is key data which the public can help with by sending in their whale photos. People keep sending us uh, whale sightings as well which is really really fantastic um, and helps us sort of add extra data to that. So just because we've got this, this international recognition now doesn't mean that all of that stops. We're going to carry on collecting that data. We still want people to be really engaged in sending us their sightings and we're just going to carry on building up this picture of just how special the islands are. Say whales are found globally but in the Falklands there appears to be an abundance of them. However, there is still very little known about this endangered species meaning that this KBA is a significant scientific achievement. At the moment, this is really just something to celebrate. We want to just show the world how amazing the Falkland Islands are for these whales. We want to have everyone in the island celebrating this together and, and recognising how, how incredible the islands are. In the long term, um, we really hope this KBA will sort of contribute to marine management in the islands and help um, continue you know, to have these whales for, in such numbers and to share these waters for such amazing neighbours. Um, but yeah, at the moment we just want to celebrate. 
Last Saturday, the historic Dockyard Museum held a community day for people to have a look at some of the crafting available in the islands and to have a go and possibly find a new hobby for the winter. We caught up with organiser Sandra Alasia, who told us more about the event. So we sort of uh, started off by having a meeting with all the art and craft people um, and my main contact, of course, is Heather Norman, of course, because she is in so many organisations. So I sat with her and sort of run through different things that we could do, got a hold of different people uh, and contact with them, and they were all willing to uh, come along and give it a go and showcase what they do uh, for, and for other people to learn a new skill. And also, if they wish to sell their goods, then that was fantastic. There was loads of people interacting. I recall two ladies, young, late, well, younger than myself. They um, they learned how to crochet, and they're going home and giving it a go. And that's what you want to hear, isn't it? So, yeah, it's awesome. In week three of the Darts League, no change at the top with Otto Outlaws riding that top spot since the league restarted. Colin Smith joins Angus McCaskill and Melvin Clifton with a bull finish. And Sarah Shepherd, Natalie Smith and Sarah Bonner all got 140s. The biggest slide was the Snowmen who dropped to 7th position after an 11-4 loss to the Scuds. Pale Maidens are off the bottom of the table after a close match with WTF, who finally won a match by one leg. No match for the Globe Boys this week as they stay in the middle of the table. And finally, Kingsley the dog can be thankful as his life was saved this week. Kingsley had gone in to have a small operation at the vets and during the procedure suffered a cardiac arrest. The quick-thinking vets grabbed the sudden heartbeat defibrillator which is housed outside the Department of Agriculture building and were able to bring the pup back from the brink. This is the first life saved by the defibrillators, which were installed by Southern Heartbeat after a massive fundraising project. That's it for this week's news roundup. If you'd like to subscribe to FITV, you can watch via the KTV Broadcasting or online through our website, fitv.co.fk. Alongside this news roundup, we also produce a light-hearted look at the week in our podcast, Meanwhile in the Falcons, which is also available on Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud. That's the latest for FITV's News Roundup. Join us next time. Goodbye.